Bonzilla presents Star Trek. Each week, we warp speed into the world of Star Trek. This week, the journey from a canceled TV series to the big screen. It's 1979's Star Trek The Motion Picture. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Bondzilla Presents. I am Nick. And I'm Will. I'm Will's back, he- everybody. He's here, everybody. I've Will's returned. Uh, yeah, so uh, welcome. Well, welcome, Will, officially now into the era of Bondzilla Presents. Will, how are you feeling about it? Uh, I, I'm feeling good. Uh, I'm feeling good. It, it's it's a bit of a, uh, you know, it's... it's uh, there's a certain uh, surrealness to getting into the passenger seat. Yeah, uh, of it, like, or at least like in in like the. I guess it's like technically the passenger seat, but it's like it's weird to be the chewy in this situation, right? Yeah, when it when at least it comes, I should say, when it comes to the recording process, it, it always comes yeah. back around the Harrison Ford, doesn't it? <laughs> Every single time, even even in Bonzilla Presents, somehow Harrison Ford, you know, gets gets involved somehow. No, that's 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 funny. Um, but yeah, like it, it is. It it is funny that like you know, in terms of the recording, and especially since we uh, became in two different locations, it is um, it is surreal just to be in the uh, in the co-pilot seat. Mm-hmm. But also, not. I mean, I'm not saying like get me get me back in, coach. Like they they never you never give Chewy the Falcon. The no. Falcon is never Chewie's. No. He doesn't get a medal. He doesn't get a Falcon. No. He he doesn't even get to eat a porg. Right. Like it goes right. Chewie from like, gets nothing. It goes from Han, and then Ray takes it for a little bit. He doesn't no. get a he doesn't get a hug. No. See, that's why if if all the Star Wars standalone stories, Chewie deserves one. Right. Well, he, well. He, but remember, he did eventually get his medal <laughs> or a medal. He of did some sort. get the medal. Oh my god. Oh my god! I I remember that was like the moment in that movie where I think you were just—that's when you got Stockholm syndrome in the mm-hmm. movie, where it's like, it, I mean, if if that's what we're going to do, like that—if that's not the moment that just breaks you into being like, fine, <laughs> like that's what we're doing in this movie. Yeah, we're giving him the medal because I remember my reaction to that was like, okay. All right. Fine. Yeah. It's just every, <laughs> everything else is just again. It's just once you get to that point, you're just like, oh, all right. Like, yeah. Just just throw it all out. Just just get rid of it. But I feel like you're lying if there wasn't a little bit of you, just that really like easy nerd part of you that wasn't somewhat like, yeah, yeah. He got the medal, and I'm happy about it. <laughs> it's just like at some point, in some sort of way, a medal was given to Chewie, and at the end of the day, you listen. Know, Dude, I know people who are very happy about that. Yeah. Like, I went to work the next day, and there were people like, yeah, Chewie got the medal. <laughs> good but, for Chewie. Anyway, but no medals for podcasting. I guess, no, are there medals for podcasting? 
Are there I podcast mean, awards? I mean, like actual ones. Well, Not I mean, like, I guess it depends on what you mean. Are we talking about Oscar level of awards, or are we talking about video game awards level of awards? No, like no, those no, are no, just two no. kind of spectrums. Because, like, you know, if you're a YouTuber, like, you eventually get that golden YouTube sign if you do well. Oh yeah, like the plaque. Yeah, is there like a like a potty? I'm sure there's something you get at mm. some point. Like I'm sure, you know, I'm sure for like the best true crime shows, like Apple throws something their way because yeah. it's like the podcast bread and butter at this point. Yeah, we we we'd be lucky to get on the MTV version <laughs> of the potties. MTV, the MTV Pod, the, the MTV Podcast Awards. I'd be down. Oh, I mean, listen, if you got the invite, I'd I'd be your plus one. Definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. Get a little golden popcorn. Absolutely. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be. It would be like a golden microphone or like with a pop- golden or a golden like podcast right. logo. With, with the popcorn though, right? It's like, it's like the, the aesthetic. No, there's no popcorn. It's fine. Popcorn like- is it. In fact, popcorn is the worst podcast image because you're chewing it. You're crunching. You're right. Like, it's stuck oh, in yeah. your teeth and then you're playing with it. Yeah. It's like yeah. that's a, it's a terrible idea. It yeah. should be a nice glass of lemon tea to like, like ease the throat. <laughs> sure, get you ready for talking. All right, fine. We'll just make it the astronaut doing a podcast, the MTV astronaut doing a podcast. That's the award. Yeah, I mean, in space, everyone can hear you podcast. Yes, and speaking of space, uh, we are going to be talking about a space themed movie today, and it is uh, it is the final frontier. I've it heard. is. Yeah. Uh. So. You know, obviously, we are going to be talking about uh, Star Trek. I've got our Star Trek Kong beginning of Bonzilla Presents. This week is another Star Trek edition. Uh, we do have, of course, the original series episode that I put out. I did solo. And uh, if I if you haven't listened to that, I still recommend it. Um, I Wait, think it- solo a Star Trek story? <laughs> uh, no. No, yes. I don't know. Um Bringing it back, baby, to Chewie. Always this, back. This, this this version of the show is going to be what? Who would Chewie be in this movie? <laughs> Fine, <laughs> sure. Why not? Um, I mean, I guess like I mean, we 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 would give respect to the range that Chewie could really showcase, right? Like just like Harrison Ford, like Chewie. You know. I mean, he has been pretty objectively great throughout all the modern movies oh, yes like yeah. it's been some of the best chewy that we've had mm-hmm. in, in, in some time right. so there is that and i mean you know chewies wouldn't be so out of place in the star wars or star trek universe and no. honestly like chewy as sort of like a you know playing some sort of weird monster on skull island like you can see it you no see I, it. I i i do like and this will be funny because as we get into this movie today i do have a bone to pick with like like aliens in the in the star trek world a little bit but so we'll we'll get into that we'll get into that point yeah um but yeah so anyways i did talk uh do a solo episode with background in the original series and gene roddenberry so if you haven't listened to it i'd recommend checking out just to get a little bit more background into sort of what we're going to be dealing with on star trek uh but what today we will be talking about star trek the motion picture from 1979 the first theatrical release in the Star Trek uh, franchise. Uh, so I just wanted to, one of, one of the things I want to do real quick before we start is again, to kind of to reiterate what's kind of interesting about looking at Star Trek. 
I kind of mentioned this, you know, in our what what Bondzilla presents is about is taking that idea of what we did with God, uh, Bond and Godzilla uh, originally of like looking at the franchises and their legacies and their impact on culture and how the film culture impacted them and how they impacted world culture, all that sort of stuff. And I wanted to do with other franchises and Star Trek, I think, is a very interesting one to look at because I, I want to exploring how we get to where Star Trek is now like Star Trek you know going from this canceled TV series to being like again the cornerstone of Paramount Plus and like what Paramount is doing with their streaming services right like the cornerstone of that started with Star Trek Discovery and the Picard show and they're developing more stuff out of that so how does it go from you know a show that could have been very obscure just this three season 60s show with a bunch of random stuff and and a guy with pointed ears to being like you know paramount's flagship franchise like where is where is that journey so i think it's going to be interesting to kind of explore the process what you said all right boldly go where no one has gone before well some people have probably gone here before but no nobody nobody that's what that's what the thing says i know but we have we haven't gone here before so we are treading some new ground what will be interesting though and maybe i'll take the opportunity to kind of lead into it this way is because obviously you did such a good job uh introducing you know your obviously your passion and interest into the uh into the franchise so um allow me to kind of like talk very briefly about my my uh my experience with star trek because the the one weird thing about star trek is that you know it it, it has a certain kind of like opposite end of the spectrum opposite side of the coin uh prevalence in uh in pop culture because for me it was like i like i mean growing up i was always kind of like the you know when you're in that like oh are you marvel or dc like days like when you're like that age of people i was always more of a star wars guy Mm -hmm. i mean i still am to 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 a degree but um but yeah, growing up, like I, I was always like way more entrenched in Star Wars. But Star Trek was one of those things where you just couldn't help but have like some sort of like it was. It's just so ingrained in the identity of just like, especially like American, like you know, pop culture. And yeah. really, I I would say growing up, even though. Like Star Wars, it was funny because Star Wars was always kind of like a definitive Hollywood blockbuster movie thing. And Star Trek, in a weird way, as I grew up, was more of the definitive sci-fi fandom thing. Mm -hmm. And that's because, like, obviously there was, like, uber fans of Star Wars and it, like, took the world by storm. But there's a certain level of Star Trek was always just that thing for me um, growing up where that was the thing that you kind of like more immediately connected to like conventions and cosplay and the fact that you would like get into like, you know, things like Klingon in real life. And you would like there was just more of kind of like a LARPing uh, aspect to it. Mm -hmm. And it was really almost more of the gateway into the whole kind of like Comic-Con thing. And the fact that like, Oh, people actually really wear their like nerd cred on their sleeve type of deal. Um, my, my uncle at the, um, he was a huge Star Trek fan. And that was kind of like, I, 
And you have to understand, like, I, I, the closest thing I grew up with Star Trek was maybe the next generation. Yeah. And that was because the theme song kicked ass, which was great watching this movie. But, like, it, and it was just kind of always on. So it really wasn't until much, much later that I kind of became more familiar with, like, the original series. And then even then, like, my big reintroduction... It's kind of like how my big reintroduction into um, James Bond was Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. Like, I kind of grew up with the Brosnan ones, but it's like, okay, now I'm going to sit down and, like, kind of get, get invested in this. Get entrenched in it, yeah, like a little yeah. bit more. And the first, so for me, as that was Casino Royale for Bond, the first thing for Star Trek to me was the um, was the J.J. Abrams uh, Trek reboot. Um, and... I remember because that was at the time one of the movies that I stayed up and I formed together like a group of friends and we went to go see at midnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, oh, yeah, that, wait, because that was what was that? 2009? Yeah, 2009. Yeah. Yeah. Because before that, I did that for the original Angley Hulk film. And then I regretted doing <laughs> that. So I didn't do it. <laughs> until i was like that you were, you were burned you were I burned by a little staying bit, yeah. up till midnight for the hulk film yeah. yeah i was like there's no way i'm gonna do this again and then the next movie i did that for was the 09 star trek film and then what was cool about that one is like i was a little bit more aware of at least a very like like a like a note card version of who all the characters were mm-hmm. like it's like i kind of knew like all right scotty is like kind of this and obviously everybody knows who spock is and like bones is like you know like bones and like things like that so enough to know to follow like oh yeah this is a reboot of that character and they're recontextualizing it this way and it really wasn't until like the college post-college era of my life that then I was becoming entrenched in the original series, uh, mainly through you and much in the same way that you learned that the um, Adam West Batman series is arguably one of the best Batman content out there ever created. Yeah. Very similar reaction to the, to the original series where I, I, like I, I kind of like I got it immediately, like mm-hmm. watching it and to the point that like I, I never I always enjoy watching an episode of it. Yeah. And, th- and that was kind of my experience with it. And then like with all the movies, I, I kind of had seen the movies like here and there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Wrath of Khan and things yeah. like that. Well, that's like, again, just to go quickly through mine, because I, I do actually have a little bit more specific history that I want to get into once we start talking about the movie itself. So I was kind of similar way where it's just like, so I, like you know i was always the star wars kid growing up but like star trek was kind of almost a definitive like science fiction thing where it's like star wars again it was like science fiction but like kind of had that fantasy element and you kind of like that was the fun of it whereas like in terms of like what you knew is like hard hard ass science fiction of like the future and and space travel and stuff like star trek is like the definitive and as one of the most passionate fan bases i'm very similar to you and for a very long time um yeah i'd only seen wrath of khan which is like obviously spoilers for that episode, one of the greatest movies ever made, uh, in my opinion. And um, 2009, and then eventually Into Darkness. And then specifically 2018, I was 4th of July week, I was at Best Buy and they had the original series movies collection on sale. 
and I like binged them in like the fourth, fourth and fifth. I just binged all the Star Trek movies because like, oh, like it's like in America and like Star Trek, it'll be fun. And then from there, it's just kind of like a fascination with the franchise because I'd always been interested in like seeing all the movies and it just never came to be like I remember earlier I could have gotten Star Trek much earlier, but then all the Star Trek movies left Netflix. So I couldn't I was like, I just waited too long. Mm-hmm. And it really was interesting to sort of find a, a bigger route and like kind of like realize like, oh, shit, I'm becoming kind of a Trekkie in many ways. And I thought that was sort of a real a fun journey. And it's a journey that I'm, I'm going to be excited to share with our audience and our fan base. And yeah, the, about, like, the, the other fun thing about Star Trek 2 was also that the whole when you do because it was funny like it really wasn't until uh the the abrams movie that i felt like people were really standing behind like oh what sets star trek out uh from everybody else Mm -hmm. and it's also interesting because it's like now we're also dealing with an era of like blockbuster filmmaking and then there's always the argument of where does star trek fit into that Mm -hmm. but at the time i think it was a little bit more uh, it was a little bit more of a heated conversation because I think it was v- like very well known that like Abrams, he and he always then meant this in good faith, but he said he always grew up as a uh, as he was a Star Wars guy and yeah. and he was a neophyte to uh, like um, to Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of like, so the everybody kind of took that narrative of, oh, it's the Star Wars guy coming to make a, a Star Trek movie. And like to this day, people kind of say like, "Oh, he's Star Warsified." I-, I think that's kind of like a little bit hyperbolic. Yeah, but I have what I will say is become more sympathetic to how fans have looked at those movies and the fandom overall. Like oh, I've I- kind of come to under like, even though like I may have my own opinions about it, I, I get where if you were like a huge fan of this property, where some of the opinions originate from i would agree i'd agree 100 mm-hmm. uh so with that kind of the background and kind of what we're trying to do here i think it's about time we get into uh, what what started the film franchise for star trek the motion picture uh is star trek the motion picture from 1979 and i think it will behoove us to take a look at the journey because obviously we had obviously where we left off in 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 the uh introduction episode the original series introduction episode we had a series canceled in 1969 and how does a canceled TV series get to be, you know, a major flagship motion picture a decade later. Uh, so Will, if you will indulge me, I, I would like to explain the history of Star Trek, the motion picture. I don't have a choice. I'm stuck in this. I'm stuck in this computer <laughs> in this zoom call right under you. All right. So, Obviously, we go back to 1969 with the original series cancellation. And again, like Gene Roddenberry, its original creator, has cut all ties with it. He sold his share of the Star Trek name back to Paramount. Paramount had taken over this franchise from Desilu Productions, and it saw it as a big money loser. NBC, who was broadcasting it, was completely done. So basically, to most people... Star Trek was a dead series. It was it was just like a thing that aired on NBC and no one was ever going to think anything of it. Paramount was like, it was something in our library. But 
what kind of happened was the wonderful world of television syndication. Now, obviously, you know, just to explain syndication a little bit, today syndication means that's why you see Seinfeld and Friends and Big Bang Theory on TBS. It's essentially once an ep- once a series normally gets around 100 episodes, the original uh, production companies and creators sell it to other networks, uh, you know, and, and, and in terms of replays. And generally you want 100 episodes because, you know, you need to have a lengthy time for those shows to kind of repeat itself that you're not doing like, you know, not like doing 10 episodes over and over and over again. But back in the seventies or 69 seventies, it was a slightly different because obviously this was the era before cable television. So what syndication meant was a lot of the local stations would get the syndicated episode. So you you had your big three at ABC, NBC, and CBS, but then every, you know, city every area had some local station you know like ktla here in l in los angeles or new york or cleveland or, or miami everybody had their kind of own specific regional station and what those stations would do would be kind of any local news you know and then syndicated shows uh and so a company by the name of kaiser broadcasting did a lot of the legwork for these companies around these stations around the country and they had actually bought into the Star Trek syndication rights during the first season, which was highly unusual practice at the time. But they saw the potential like a lot of people did in that first season. And they saw that like, well, you know, we're paying it cheap now. If it gets to a good episode length, this will be kind of good to kind of counter broadcast. So a lot of times, you know, those other networks would have syndication shows up to where the networks would go to primetime. And then, you know, they would kind of be the lead up to whatever primetime was, and that's where they would get a large share of their audience. So Kaiser Broadcasting thought that, oh, Star Trek is something different, something new. If we can get the episode length, then, you know, this will be good lead up for, you know, those other networks and get into before the the big three get into primetime. So uh, the syndication kicks in. And even though Star Trek didn't get to that 100 episode threshold, they thought, well, you know, it's got like 70 something episodes. It's fine. You know, just something to put on the air. That's all it was. And the network started airing them. These local networks in different areas of the country started airing them in 1969 in the fall. And something immediately happened, Will, was Star Trek was always cursed with bad time slots for their audience. They're kind of younger college days audience that made up a big part of what was the Star Trek uh, fandom at that time, the, the you know the people that were writing letters and protesting outside of NBC and and Paramount and Desilu, and when these syndication networks, these these local networks, started putting on their Star Trek shows earlier, it actually helped to kind of gather uh, some of that college age audience that a lot of them would come after class and see Star Trek on the air, and basically from there it was a combination of word of mouth. It was a combination of we had actually landed on the mood. So science fiction was kind of back on the rise of like, oh, we actually did succeed in kind of this science space travel stuff. And to be frank, it's just was Star Trek in many ways was sort of ahead of its time and just found a word of mouth audience on these local networks to the point where Paramount started to take notice because now by 1970, even by 1971, the networks had realized or or Paramount had realized that not only were more and more stations requesting Star Trek as part of the syndication packages, but the ratings on these syndications were now rivaling 
uh, rivaling, rivaling, rivaling. Yes, thank you. Rivaling the primetime shows. So now this series that Paramount had no interest in it in was now c- competing with the primetime slots, essentially, in terms of ratings, when nobody had wanted the show. So now Paramount had sort of a, well, maybe we do have something here. The series that we had completely ignored, maybe there is something to this, right? But they still weren't entirely sure. So they decided while they kind of figure out what exactly they wanted to do with Star Trek uh, for its permanent future, or if it had a permanent future, if this was a fluke, they decided to have a stopgap and a test to see if the Star Trek thing was really something to hit. And that's where we get the animated series in 73. Now there was a new project in the works and Filmation wanted to get the original cast back together for the uh, production of the series. Um, And one thing Paramount quickly realized as they were kind of getting together this idea for this animated series that would run on Saturday mornings is they could not do any more Star Trek stuff without Gene Roddenberry because the fandom had grown to a point where people knew Gene Roddenberry was this huge deal within Star Trek because Roddenberry had made these connections with the fans. He was attending the earliest sci-fi conventions showing clips from Star Trek episodes. He was the one who got these Star Trek fans together to protest the show to make sure it didn't get canceled after season two. He had become such an idolized person within the Star Trek franchise that Paramount was worried that if they didn't involve Roddenberry, that nobody would come watch the show. They were kind of stuck in this corner where it's like, well, we need to invite this guy back, even though they they technically didn't need to. Now, Roddenberry obviously had given up on Star Trek, and he was someone, Will, who now was stuck as being the sci-fi guy who made a sci-fi show that apparently nobody watched. You know, he was, when after Star Trek, he was like, okay, I'm done with sci-fi. I'm going to pitch those Westerns. I'm going to pitch those cop shows. But everybody wanted to hear sci-fi pitches. But then we're like, we want to hear sci-fi pitches, but we also know that Star Trek didn't succeed when it was on the regular air. So we don't want to take that risk, even though we asked you for the, for the sci-fi pitch. It was kind of that executive creative cycle. The closest the way that Roddenberry had gotten to a new show after that was the show Genesis 2, which had taken place like a, it was like a guy wakes up on a post-apocalyptic earth and finds all the different factions of this world. And CBS had put the money down and put everything down. He had like 10 scripts written and then CBS aired Planet of the Apes. The Planet of the Apes movie got big ratings. So they took all the money away from Genesis 2 and developed the ill-fated Planet of the Apes live action series. So Roddenberry at this point, you know, he had given up on Star Trek and now suddenly it was this big hit. And when Paramount asked him back to oversee the animated series, he jumped at the chance. It was work. Um, so the original that animated series gets on the air in 73. And Paramount sees that the ratings come in for it. And even though it's a traditional Saturday morning cartoon, the adult audience for it is ginormous. It's the biggest ever for a Saturday morning cartoon. So people were truly invested in Star Trek or so it seemed. So now Paramount was fully convinced that it was about time to move Star Trek onto the big screen, that they thought, okay, 
this seems to be real. Even our animated series that only aired for 22 episodes saw big ratings from, from the audience that we want. Let's make a movie. Let's make a movie out of it. Uh, the first movie that Roddenberry pitches. So obviously they go to Roddenberry first. Cause obviously again, they want him involved just to make the Star Trek fans happy. And he goes off uh, to write this movie called uh, Star Trek, the God thing, which was based around his, uh, how should I put it? His increasingly lower views on religion. And the whole pitch for the God thing was the Star Trek crew gets back together and find this alien computer that they've reveal had been posing as, you know, had basically been posing as God on different planets, including as Jesus on earth and is now malfunctioning and threatening to be like a destroyer God. And the star Trek crew have to like, you know, stop this computer God from destroying everything. And the Paramount executives were not pleased with this at all. They were like, Oh, apparently one uh, executive had said, Oh, it turned out God was just some damn malfunctioning computer. Uh, So they were not pleased. So they were like, okay, screw this Roddenberry guy. We'll still have him involved. We'll still have him kind of feel like he's, you know, being creative, but we're going to get a bunch of other sci-fi writers on board here. So they brought in kind of the heavy hitters of the era. They brought in Ray Bradbury, who pitched a version of his story, Sound of Thunder, which is the one with the butterfly effect and all that sort of stuff with the Star Trek crew. Harlan Ellison, uh, who had written, you know, City on the Edge of Forever. And even though he had, you know, had a bad time with that process on the original series, work was work. And he pitched a new story for Star Trek with his story was one where lizard people go back in time to help lizards evolve on earth to become a dominant race. And then the Star Trek friend, uh, the Star Trek crew has to go back in time, but then has to wrestle with, well, can we really commit genocide on this, this uh, lizard race, even though they technically shouldn't exist in existential crisis as Harlan Ellison would, would love to do. Uh, but he left when they suggested that the Mayan civilization get involved, when Paramount suggested the Mayan civilization get involved. So then Paramount's like, oh shit, none of these are good. We might have gotten too far into this Star Trek thing. So the executives at Paramount decide to push the Star Trek project onto one of their newest rising creative CEOs in the company, Michael Eisner. No way. Yeah. So Michael Eisner was a kind of a rising kind of name at Paramount. These people kind of pushed Star Trek onto him. And Eisner was among like the people who was like, what the fuck are we doing here? Like, why are we talking about Star Trek? Like, he just didn't get it. But he continued on the project because his right-hand man, Jeffrey Kratzenberg, who their partnership would be, you know, legendary, of course, was a big Trekkie. And so he was like, no, there's something here, buddy. We're, we're going we're gonna to go with this thing. So he takes a few more pitches. Uh, there's also kind of another time travel pitch from Roddenberry and writer John Pavel. But eventually we get to um, the biggest chance of a Star Trek pitch in a while, which is Star Trek Planet of the Titans. Uh, so this story was basically a long developing version of the first movie in which 
Captain Kirk disappears for three years in mysterious space. And eventually Spock and the crew, three years after his disappearance, find him on a planet where he has been, you know, given possibly godlike powers, at least in most versions of the script. Uh, and reveals that the planet was where the legendary titans of Greek and Roman mythology came from. Eventually, you know, they fight the Klingons for control of the titans and the planet. They go to back in time, introduce fire to humans. It's a whole big, big thing, like a lot of different pieces were coming in. Mm-hmm. But this script was very much for a long time was going to be the movie. This is like kind of we're talking about 76 right here. We're talking about, you know, they're asking directors. They ask Steven Spielberg to direct Planet of the Titans. Um, but he's, you know, coming and kind of coming off of Jaws and he's getting a lot of action, but he was still kind of a new name. They asked George Lucas to direct Planet of the Titans, but he was like, you know, he kind of like wavered, but he was developing his own sci-fi project, as we we know. Uh, they asked Francis Ford Coppola to direct it as well. He was coming off the Godfather movies, but he uh, uh, Coppola was very invested in doing Apocalypse Now at that point. Even Robert Wise, uh, who would eventually direct the motion picture, was asked, but a lot of people were busy. Eventually, they did get a man named Philip Kaufman, who was most known for being sort of his, like one like a on his like iconoclast like he just did stuff that was different they was just did stuff that was weird did stuff like that was just not on the level but it was just a kind of a rising name people knew of him in the industry and so he they decided to kind of get him on board and basically for him he kind of described his version of the movie as he said it would have pissed a lot of fans off but I think I could have done something really unique, something different. He had inserted a lot of kind of more sexual themes into the script, a lot more sort of like otherworldly, just kind of like sensual ideas. And he wanted to have uh, some legendary Japanese actors come in to play Klingons opposite Spock. It was a whole thing where they kind of developed a script and Eisner as head of this production was increasingly upset with what the movie was going to be. And eventually it just came down to the fact that the movie just wasn't going to be anything in in Eisner's eyes. So he decides to just put a pull the plug on the project. Oh, I should mention though, by the way, uh, before I say that, that also they did hire production designer, Ken Adam, as we have seen in the bond franchise and Christopher McQuarrie, not Christopher McQuarrie. Um, what's his face? Ralph McQuarrie. I misspoke. Ralph McQuarrie. So they hired Ken Adam and Ralph McQuarrie to do production design on the movie. Ralph, I think I think you mean uh, Ralph McQuarrie? I yes, thought that's Ma- how you say his name. Yeah, yes. I'm just yeah. I'm just saying Ralph McQuarrie. Thank you. Who's most known? Were you for about the- to were you about to say like I'm just saying his name? I'm like, well I, <laughs> I get names all the time wrong on this show, Will. <laughs> well, and then I'm I'm here to correct you. It's, so it's Ralph McQuarrie. McQuarrie Ralph McQuarrie. Uh-huh who had just been coming off of all his designs on Star Wars, had come on to Star Trek. And Cat Adam, who had obviously been a lot of doing a lot of Bond stuff around this time, also came on to Star Trek. Uh, so they were all in. And this was something where they were getting ready to kind of do set building. And like then actors were kind of getting signed. Like, you know, like the, the main crew was getting signed. Um, you know, Shatner and, and, and McCoy and everything. And uh, everybody. Eisner was just said, no, uh, this is just not working. 
and Katzenberg tried to kind of save it at the last minute, but uh, they decided to cancel the project May 1977, three weeks before the premiere of Star Wars. One of the other reasons that the ser- the show got canceled was there was another project in the works at Paramount. Uh, one of the executives at Paramount by the name of Barry Diller was already kind of looking at this Planet of the Titans project as, again, a mess. And his he had a vision of Paramount having their own television network called the Paramount Television Service. And Diller's vision for this was going to be a place where Paramount could showcase its library of movies while also developing in-house projects that Paramount would have complete control over. Which I find very fascinating when I was kind of learning about this because this is essentially what's going on right now uh, with the streaming services. That these companies Mm -hmm. are kind of creating their own platforms to obviously showcase their vast libraries, but also to have their kind of exclusive content. And and also this was the era really before any of the networks were owned. Because obviously eventually Disney buys ABC, Universal buys NBC, and CBS is eventually folded into Viacom, which gets Paramount on board anyways. But this was like way ahead of even Fox making their own network. You know, uh, the fourth network wouldn't become a thing until, you know, the 80s. So the fact that this guy, Barry Diller, thought like, oh, we haven't have a showcase for Paramount's vast library. We can have a fourth major network. And his plan was, okay, it seems like the Star Trek thing is not working for the movies. It's a TV show at heart. We had the original series. He had the animated series. Let's do a new series let's do a new let's do star trek a new series bring back the old cast it'll be the anchor of our new tv network it'll bring in the viewers for our new tv network so now all of eisner's money and all of that stuff that they planned for star trek was now shifted back to the television division as they prepared for what was known as star trek phase two now the original cast was pretty much mostly on board, though, as, as Shatner and especially as George Kai put it, they were already kind of jerked around on these two movies. That the God thing was kind of in production for a while and then was basically thrown out. And then the planet, you know, Planet of the Titans was basically three weeks away from shooting and, you know, or not shooting, but three weeks away from like major production stuff. And was just basically like, nope, we're not doing that. So a lot of them had trepidations about doing this new series because they thought, well, we're just never going to see the Star Trek thing happen again. But Paramount already kind of knew this and already said, well, we're just going to get these guys for the first 13 episodes and then we're going to have a whole new cast. So Shatner's definitely on board because he's just been doing, and a lot of the, a lot of the Star Trek cast had not really been working other than Shatner and uh, Nimoy, who had been doing kind of the rounds of like, the, again, the, the Rick Dalton types guest spots. Mm-hmm. You know, they both had episodes of Columbo, that sort of thing. And Shatner was completely on board with this because, okay, well, he likes being a star. He was a star on Star Trek. He had gotten much more notoriety now that the Star Trek thing has kind of come back into play. So, sure, I'll, I'll be on board. But the big deal with Star Trek Phase 2 is that Leonard Nimoy had announced he was not coming back to play Spock for Mm. a couple reasons. One, 
is he did not want to do another round of doing a, a traditional television series. He liked the freedom, like going between different series. And he already had aspirations to potentially get into film projects and even a potentially be on a creative side and direct and write. He was not into the rigors of a, of a, uh, a show. The other thing is that he had had issues with Roddenberry and Paramount on two fronts. One, back in the animated series, uh, originally they were not going to bring back George Takai and Michelle Nichols to play Sulu and Uhura for budgeting reasons. And their plan was to have James Duhon voice Sulu and to have Majel Barrett, who had played Nurse Chapel and was, you know, related to uh, or had married now to Roddenberry play Uhura. And Nimoy had played hardball at the time and says, I'm not coming back unless you bring those two back. Because first of all, it's not fair to them. They should get the same money that we're getting here to, for this success of the series Two, it speaks very badly of you that the series, it's all about, you know, diversity and the, the, the wave of the future that you would recast the, t- the two um, minority roles right, played right. by white people. So Nimoy had won on that, uh, but he was already sort of like strained with just like the, the rigors of just like, well, how much are they into it for the cast? Cause the cast generally had a great time on the original series. This was never successful and they were all very eager to kind of get back together but again, it was like Nemo was like, how much is about it is actually the art of it and how much is the money? And that especially got to be a point where Paramount had started using the Spock imagery and specifically Nemo's face in advertisements without his knowledge. The famous story is that he went to see Peter Fonda in a play in London. And when he met Fonda after the play, he's like, I hope you're getting a lot of money for those Heineken ads. And Nemo had no idea what he was talking about. And then realized like that that Paramount had licensed out the Spock image to Heineken for billboard ads uh, and, and some television commercials. So Nimoy was just like, no, I'm just not I'm not playing with this bullshit this time. So now Ron Barry was like, okay, well, we need to kind of get the new cast and the cast that may take over if after 13 episodes we can't make the money or if things don't work out. So they need a new Vulcan. And Roddenberry's plan is to have a new Vulcan that's a little bit younger. So they're like, okay, well, he can't be the second in command. So then they also decide to get a second in command character in William Decker, which uh, Roddenberry planned to be, again, Kirk's protege. And then when he was looking at the bridge, he was like, same issue that he had with the original series. Like, well, we just added two male characters. We should add another female character to like, you know, balance things out. So then the Ilya character comes in. So now they have these three major roles to get there. And while they're casting these roles, Will, as I'll get to in just a second, they start writing out pilot ideas. And one of the pilot ideas is an episode written by Alan Dean Foster, the famous, you know, again, famous for his Star Wars novelizations. I have his Black Hole novelization sitting on my shelf right here. Very famous sci-fi writer. And he writes in Thy Image, which is about you know, this big mysterious cloud coming in and the Star Trek crew has to investigate. And this pilot, this big anchor of what this Paramount television service is going to be is submitted to Michael Eisner, who is still kind of in charge of the Star Trek project. And as soon as Eisner sees the In Thy Image script, he bangs his hand on his desk and says, that's your movie. That's your movie right there. Simultaneous to this, 
the Paramount executives above Barry Diller are basically realizing that the advertisers would not want to come in to a fourth television network because they're going to be spreading their advertising dollars too thin. Which again is kind of funny to think now with all the all the ways that we spread out advertising now. Right. But back then they just had their budget for television advertising, and they were like, "Well, we're not going to pay for a fourth network." Paramount explored even the possibility of having a network only on weekends, where the Star Trek it would basically be Friday, Saturday, Sundays, and that would be the only days on the air. But that also wasn't feasible. So now the Paramount executives were overseeing. Uh, you know, overstepping Barry Diller and saying, no, we're not doing this television service. This is a dumb idea. So now Star Trek Phase 2 was a series that had no network and also had an executive that saw this television pilot as a movie, as a feature film. And the third thing happened, which was the success of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> that makes sense. Because when... It's funny... They canceled again. They canceled the God thing or uh, Planet of the Titans three weeks before Star Wars opened, and then when Star Wars was successful, they were like, "Oh, we we dodged a bullet. We ca- there can't be two big successful sci-fi things. Star Wars already took the sci-fi thing, so we're, we 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 would have lost money. We would have been seen as a copy. No worries. We're we're good. We're doing this television series, but then Close Encounters comes out, and that's also a huge success." And now Paramount is realizing, one, oh, there is room for more sci-fi. And two, oh, shit, that could have been us. We could have been on this train. And now are we going to be behind the ball? So they're trying to quickly, they're trying to quickly get this thing rolling. Um, and what's funny, too, is that I mentioned that we had these three new characters being cast. And what they didn't really know was they they were auditioning these people were auditioning for a television series then when they were casted they were like oh by the way it's a movie now now that's unheard of yeah so i do want to mention the three castings that we have cuz they all have different uh stories that we play originally david garito was going to be playing the new vulcan zon in the television series and he was someone who was like, he wasn't really an actor. He wasn't kind of represented, but he just like heard about this and he was kind of a Star Trek fan. So we decided to kind of get into, you know, he was kind of interested in playing this Vulcan. So he had decided to go in for the audition and originally he was cast as on the Vulcan. And then Majel Barrett, who again was going to be playing Nurse Chapel on the series, did not like, she had this whole thing in the original series where she kind of had this crush on Spock. And she wanted to continue that, whereas it's like, oh, I have crush on Vulcans, but oh, this guy's too young. I can't be, I can't be attracted to this young dude. It'd be creepy. So then they were like going to get an older guy, but then the older guy they brought in was terrible. So then Zahn, uh, or David Garou was still on board to play Zahn. And then when they, then he signs on for the series, gets his pay for the series. Then they tell him, oh, by the way, it's no longer a series. It's a movie. And we're trying to get Spock back, so we might not need a new Vulcan. So here, you can play this guy at the Epsilon 9 space station. You can, you can still have a part. Uh-huh. Then you have uh, Persisus Kambata as Ilya, the Deltan, who is a new alien species. And this whole idea was, again, she didn't 
wasn't originally a part of the very original aspect. And then Roddenberry's like, we need another woman. And we wanted to be kind of, again, person of color if possible. Uh, Parasis was uh, Indian, as in from India. Um, and the whole thing about the Deltons were originally going to be there. They give off sexual hormones, basically. That's like their kind of energy and that they they they're they're very you have to be very cautious around them because they're they naturally make you horny that was basically going to be the the thing of the deltons and she goes in in this realm where it's like they don't know they're she's at she's like they're she goes in for the television series and when she goes for the audition they're like hey by the way it might be a movie we don't know yet was this audition originally with the tv series is going to be a bald cap and then when they did the movie, they're like, oh, well, if it's going to be just a movie, we're going to shave. Let's just shave her head. And Persis was like, I don't want to shave my head because I don't know if the hair is going to grow back. She was very frightened of it. Roddenberry promised her that he would take out insurance on her hair if it didn't grow back. And luckily it did. But she did decide to do the bald. She go bald for the movie to shave her head. She did. She went the Karen Gillan route. Yes. And then Stephen Collins, uh, he comes in when they've basically decided, okay, it's a movie, but they're still auditioning roles for this Willard Decker character that they don't know if they need. They don't know if they're going to roll it all into Spock again, if they can get him back, or they might not have Spock, so they have to get him back. So they're auditioning this role that is not a guarantee to be in the movie. Uh, but eventually, Stephen Collins does come in to the Willard Decker character, who is a son of a character that died in the original series, and again, sort of the mentor relationship with Kirk and Stephen Collins is the first of two cast members of seventh heaven that we'll see in a star Trek movie. Uh, so yeah. So basically now that is who that is. Yes. That is where I recognized him. I could He's not place much, my finger on him. Much younger version of him. Yeah. Though this, this new crew definitely has transformers generation two. Like Rodimus Prime vibes, where it's like, <laughs> like you're like, oh, like it's the it's the new crew for the new era, but nobody really cares because yeah, it, you really just want to see all your old guys. So the thing was is that they had basically decided now we're we're kind of into later seventy seven now, and the thing is, Paramount knows that it's going to be a movie. There's no doubt about it at this point. It's going to be a movie. But they don't want to kind of frighten off the cast because they'd already done so many switches on like three different movie projects and, you know, this whole thing with the television series and the fans were already getting pissed about like all, all like, you know, we want new Star Trek. There was still demand for it. So they basically proceed as if the television series is going while they're kind of secretly one, trying to find a director and two, debating on whether or not they can get Nimoy back now, now that it's a movie. So the thing is, is like the television series for phase two, the sets are built, makeup people, you know, scripts are being taken in. Like they have like 10 written scripts that are ready to go for a television series. And eventually it's like, you know, they tell Shatner, they tell uh, DeForest Kelly, they start kind of letting it out until it's eventually announced that yes, Phase two is canceled. We're going to be going on with a movie. Uh, so they do get Robert Wise as the director of the movie. And Robert Wise uh, was hired because of his vast variety of work. 
He had he had directed, you know, sci-fi before. He had directed the original Day the Earth Stood Still. He had directed the recent sci-fi science fiction kind of horror film, The Andromeda Strain, a couple of years before this. But he had also won Oscars for his work on West Side Story uh, and The Sound of Music. So um, he was very versatile, very well respected in the industry. And he had no connection with Star Trek, but his wife was a big Trekkie. And it was his wife that said, you cannot make a Star Trek movie without Spock. People will not go to see this movie without Spock. And even though Eisner, again, was like, I just want to make the movie. Who gives a fuck about Spock? He's a guy with ears. Like Eisner didn't get any of this. But everybody was able to convince, okay, just make good with him. Give him these, give him a big check for like the royalties for the Heineken ad. Let him come back. And Shatner came in, or sorry, Nimoy came in. He got his check and he still debated whether or not he wanted to get into it. But then he was like, well, this may be the only Star Trek movie. And I'd have to go the rest of my career answering why I didn't do it. And like, you know, that's basically all everybody's going to ever ask me. Might as well come back, make it big which worked for Shatner too, because Shatner one did like working with Nimoy and two had what they called the favored nations clause in his contract, where this goes back to the original series where if Spock, if Nimoy got their increase in pay, so did Shatner. They always were paid equal. So that Shatner got the Nimoy got this huge deal to come back. Shatner's pay rose back up. Mm -hmm. So uh, what they wanted to do was not be star Wars very much. Not. They viewed Star Wars as science fantasy. As Rodby, Rodby kind of said in private meetings that it's, it's, you know, Star Wars is good, but it's all princesses and princes and it's em- empires and like, you know, sword fights and stuff. That's not us. We're doing science fiction. We're telling you about the future. So the main thing that they kind of said is that they wanted something very different, which is what Eisner, what they saw in this, in thy image script, which is now titled Star Trek, the motion picture this big mysterious cloud and this big mysterious ship and kind of, again, the more tactical elements of it, you know, the more technology driven. And with that wise and paramount decided they were going to make this a huge ass visual effects movie, which wise had never really done, but he was like, this is what the movie needs to be. It needs to be this big epic scale, huge effects, like the biggest effects anybody's ever seen. A lot of the sets that were built for phase two were reused for the motion picture, but redetailed for a bigger screen. And Paramount decided they had gone and explored outside uh, production studios for the visual effects, but they decided instead to bring it all in-house and basically make it one big-ass production model thing. Uh, a lot of models were built. Most famously was the V'ger model, which is the main ship, uh, the main enemy ship in the movie. Originally, there was kind of this big, you know, this kind of big, kind of eight foot long style miniature that they weren't happy with. So they brought in another person to do it. And he built a 68 foot long, huge ass V'ger ship that they could just do whatever the fuck they wanted with. So the 68 foot, very much, again, what you see in the movie, very different. Uh, things on it, you know, different kind of angles that you could go. So basically, we're at this point now that they're making this big ass movie. They are trying to turn this television pilot into a feature film script and trying to figure out okay, so like Decker and Ilya are characters that were supposed to be ongoing characters 
in the series. They were supposed to be part of like kind of this crew. So now that we're just doing this kind of two hour movie, what the fuck do we do with them? So their kind of roles kind of shift very differently throughout the entire production. The third act is rewritten basically until they have to shoot it. There is no ending until they're like, okay, well we have to shoot this ending. And the Paramount people are like, you know, and then Paramount's like, we want to do this movie, but we don't believe in a sentient, a robot, like a machine cannot be sentient. Then, okay, Roddenberry brings in his friend Isaac Asimov uh, to say, like, pitch them why robots can't be sentient. <laughs> and Asimov does it, and they still don't believe him. And then what finally convinces them to go with the sentient robot idea is in Penthouse, the famous magazine, there is an interview with a NASA scientist who basically says, yeah, feasibly robots and machines could be sentient at some point. And then the Paramount executives like, well, if it's in Penthouse and it's from a Nassau guy, go for it. Let's do it. So they finally get approval on the ending. But because, and there's a lot of other minutia about like the production stories, which, you know, I think is, is fairly interesting, but there's lots to see. And I honestly think that it's better for us to start getting into the movie. And I think a lot of that stuff will come into the movie. But one of the main things that happens with this movie and Wise admits this much later is that he shot too much. He shot mm. way too much because the, he was so focused on the visual effects and making them look spectacular. And they had a script that again was going for between a television pilot and, and going originally on television sets to being a film and now being like having to be more detailed and, and, and again, character shifting. And then eventually Paramount allows Shatner and Nimoy to get input into their characters. So then they have to acquit them. So basically, when it comes to editing, because because Wise was was an editor to begin with, he had edited Citizen Kane, like he was like in one of the a, a highly profile editor early in his career, and even he was just overwhelmed by the amount of footage and like the movie that they had made, and the editing just was so much of an undertaking that according to Wise, the film was still wet when we took it to the premiere. They basically were cutting it up until the very last minute. And that's basically the movie that we kind of got to see today that we are watching the theatrical version of this movie today. Cool. So yeah, so that's the journey, Will. That's the journey from a canceled TV series to Star Trek, the motion picture. Right, cool. Let's get into the movie. Science officer Spock, reporting as ordered, Captain. Please sit down. Spock, you haven't changed a bit. You're just as warm and sociable as ever. Nor have you, Doctor, as your continued predilection for irrelevancy demonstrates. Gentlemen, at last report, you were on Vulcan. Apparently to stay. Yes, you were undergoing the Colonier discipline. Sit down. If you are referring to the Colinar, Doctor, you are correct. Well, however it's pronounced, Mr. Spock, it's the Vulcan ritual that's supposed to purge all remaining emotions. The Colinar is also a discipline you broke to join us. Will you please sit down?
on Vulcan, I began sensing a consciousness from a source more powerful than I have ever encountered. Thought patterns of exactingly perfect order. I believe they emanate from the intruder. I believe it may hold my answers. Well, isn't it lucky for you that we just happen to be heading your way? Bones. We need him. I need him. Then my presence is to our mutual advantage. All right. Star Trek, the motion picture from 1979. Uh, big year for sci-fi. It was the same year Alien released, the same year uh, Moonraker released, um, and of course, same year the Black Hole released. So basically a lot of these kind of projects that were kind of spurned from that kind of duel of, of Star so, Wars and and and, uh, and uh, the Close Encounters of the Third Kind were all coming to fruition in 1979. So what you're saying is much more better movies were released this year. <laughs> All right. I, I just want to start b- by giving my history with this movie real quick. And then I'll be, I'm very interested to hear your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So again, once upon a time, a Nick went into Best Buy on a 4th of July week and saw that the original series was on sale, the whole movie series and bought it. And it was like, okay, I have the fourth and the fifth off. I'm going to marathon everything. So I've got to see I marathon all the original series movies in order, which means I have to start with the motion picture, which I had heard about its reputation and all the nicknames. Star Trek, the slow motion picture, Star Trek, the no motion picture, all the motion picture puns. I had heard it and I watched the movie and I was like, oh, man, I get it. I get why everybody doesn't like it. I get why everybody makes fun of it. Cool. I watched the rest of the original series movies. A couple weeks later, I'm writing. I'm working for something to put on. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to put on their motion picture again. I don't know why. I just feel like it's a nice, calm movie that I can put myself onto. Then I find myself watching it again. Then I bought the soundtrack. Then I bought the vinyl. Then last year, I went to see it in theaters for the 40th anniversary. I have an unhealthy obsession with Star Trek The Motion Picture, a movie that I have come to love because of and despite all of its flaws. It's a movie that I have no idea why I enjoy it as much as I do. I get every single, and I agree with every single criticism of this movie or pretty much every single criticism of the movie, but there's something about it, Will, that just kind of captures me for some reason. And I hope to kind of discuss it uh, when we're talking about the movie today. Well, I mean, that's because the movie has a lot of merit to it. I mean, absolutely. I mean, here's the thing. I I joked about it up at top, uh, but it is funny. Like, okay, so my experience watching it, this was the first time I had ever seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am also coming in aware of the reputation behind it and where it fits into the uh, the franchise and how Rafikon, like, you know, like why Rafikon is the type of movie it is, is in like the, the behind the scenes regarding that. So I came in kind of like knowing a lot of that. So a, a lot of it was like, I, I kind of knew what I was going to get into. Um, and then my biggest takeaway is like, I get everything about it. I, I get why this is the movie it is. I completely understand why I get that. This is the reaction to it. Everything that people have said about it. I mean, to a certain degree, I understand why it has the reputation it has. 
Yeah. So like, I, I was kind of like unsurprised by the experience of watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, now my personal experience watching it, I think you and me are probably going to see eye to eye on a lot of the movie's merits because there's a lot in the movie that really does work and it's really cool, but it's also doesn't work. <laughs> it really <laughs> like, is. Yeah, like, it, ex- it's, it's really weird. Like, because I'll be completely honest, like the experience of watching this movie was a constant waning of interest. Mm-hmm. And there would be moments where I was like super into it. And there'd be moments where I, and it wasn't even like I was disliking it. I just found myself and my attention just not, it, I just found that the movie wasn't as grabbing me. And then if I thought about the movie, I'm like, well, it should be grabbing me more than it does. And the one thing I will say is that the aspects that people call like the slow moving picture or like, you know, the slow motion picture, something like that. Yeah. All that stuff is the best part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like as like, and then I'll I'll get into that. Um, but and then it was like, it was very kind of bizarre to watch. But again, I kind of understood the direction that they were coming from. So like, I, I do want to read this because as you were talking, I was looking up like some of the reception of the movie, mm-hmm. and. As we were kind of leading up into this conversation, I was kind of thinking over my thoughts. And one of the thoughts I had was like, this reminds me a lot of like Interstellar. Mm. In, in terms of like the big ideas and the visual and the the filmmaking like at, at display here is really awe-inspiring. That's yeah. really the only word I can say. So why aren't I, like, really engaged in the movie? That was kind of, like, the big thing. I was enjoying, like, and very awe-inspired by some of these moments. But I I don't think I ever found myself any scene that didn't have bones in it. I don't think I was, like, enjoying it. (laughs) Not that I, like, it was, like, off-putting. I just didn't find myself engaging with it. Yeah. Um, Up until maybe the last 30 minutes. I actually thought the last 30 minutes of the film were quite good. Yeah. Um... But so I I do want to read this, this, uh, this, uh, piece, um, Scott, uh, um, Bukatman, uh, reviewed this film for Aries magazine and he wrote with Star Trek Roddenberry's trick has been to wear the mask of the humanist as he plays with his erector set. The scale of the television series arrested his vision at a comfortable and still interesting level, but the new film has finally removed the mask. Very much in a very Nolan-esque way, where the the biggest thing that I understood about the movie was like, okay, I get it. This is now your vision making it onto the big screen, your story of Star Trek is about like the future and the possibility of exploration. Now you want to make your grown up movie that's very 2001 ish. Mm-hmm. And no, that's very much. Movie, and yeah. that's what the movie is. And it reminded me of Nolan, where I'm like, okay, so that's all good. All your human parts are kind of l- lacking. And I think what made it worse was that this is a series where you love all the characters. Yeah. 
And if it wasn't for um, DeForest Kelly bringing, that's the actor's name, right? As yes. Bones. Like he was like the character. I was like, oh, human beings in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, I mean, it all kind of came down to, and this may be, and this will be how I wrap up my initial thoughts, is that, it, 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 and this is very maybe nitpicky, but we spend, obviously the big joke is that they spend like an exor- like a huge amount of time introducing the Enterprise. Yes. Just like, you know, going through, which I don't really have a problem with, honestly, and, I'll, and we'll, we'll talk about it. But they spend so much time doing that. And then like, Ahura and Sulu are like introduced in a group shot. Yeah. Like, I'm like, this is like the movie where you got everybody back and like they're on the big screen for the first time. Like, and you know me, we've talked about this, like reintroducing characters, like unless maybe it's like a sequel, like, and I get that it's a continuation, but like, I mean, this is the first time you're like seeing all of these characters and they're kind of just like walking into the scene. (laughs) And again, yeah. Bones is like one of the only characters that has like a Bones introduction. Like yes. that's the thing. Like everybody should have like their type of introduction. And Bones has like an introduction where he's like, ah, you're, you're pulling me back in the mess. Like he's kind of having like, and that's why you love him. And then, but everybody else just kind of like shows up in the movie. And so that's, so overall, what I would say is like I actually do have some of like I, I feel like the movie has a lot of merit. I, I didn't think it was bad. I actually took away quite a bit that I liked, but it was an experience of in and out interest. Yeah, in it really is because I think that was like my first experience with the movie, and it's like the more I've watched it, like I got to tell you, like I last not it wasn't even last year; it was 2019 again because time is just an enigma that was the 40th anniversary and I went to see it and I was the only person under 60 in that theater, 100%. And I had a whale of a time just seeing it on the big screen and mm-hmm. I, I just enjoy it. It's like, a, for me, it's just like a nice, you know, it's like a, a nice meditative movie that I could just put on. It's an easy background. Now Star movie. Trek, the voyage home. That's a whale of a good time. Yes. Oh, I cannot wait to talk about that either, but I think we should kind of get more details about this movie. Um, which begins, I got to say, with the Jerry Goldsmith overture and the title song. So this was something that you had informed me, I think, like a year ago, is that the the what I know as the Next Generation theme was actually the theme used in, in, in this film. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the other things that you said blew my mind was, I guess I should have known this about how they were making the original series movies while that show was going on. Yeah. And that just kind of, I was like, oh, I guess that is right. That's yeah, no, it's it's hard. true. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Goldsmith really brings, and, and that's definitely one of the film's highlights is Goldsmith's score, which may be one of the great gaps between how great a score is and, like, the movie it's attached to, which, again, it's not that bad, but the score is so just continually blows my mind whenever I listen to it that like the fact that it's with Star Trek, the motion picture is always really funny to me, but yes, eventually Roddenberry loved the theme so much that when they did the original, the next generation, he, he asked Goldsmith permission to use the theme as the official Star Trek theme, um, which is cool. Uh, so we get the overture, we get the title screen, and then we are introduced to the new look Klingons. So uh, we didn't really talk about them too much, but 
the Klingons are featured in this big opening sequence, which introduces our mysterious cloud that is on its uh, ahead of course or Earth and is destroying everything in its path, seemingly. Uh, and the Klingons, who were basically, you know, human-esque characters in the original series, get their first ever redesign, which Roddenberry wanted because it was not he had a bigger budget so it was an opportunity to kind of actually do alien looks mm-hmm. that he couldn't do on the show outside of the Vulcan ears essentially and maybe a blue skinned alien here or there the, the this mysterious cloud uh we see a kind of an action sequence with these with these klingon cruisers and the federation is kind of looking in on this and they're saying oh shit like this this thing's heading to to earth and we got to get the best team on it so ben, this is when we introduced the kirk uh, we're actually introduced to Spock first. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. Yes, yeah. I should say that. So we're introduced. So we see this, and then we're introduced to long-haired Spock back on Vulcan. Um, going through this ceremony that he had uh, previously denied to keep his human half, essentially, to kind of... This, this ceremony is essentially to purge the last of your emotions to make you a completely logical being. Um. And he basically gets, uh, you know, he, he's going through the final thing, but he gets a, uh, a, you know, his Vulcan sense, the sort of Obi-Wan sense that something's out there, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And the Vulcan people are like, this is touching your human half. So you've failed. You know, your answers lie elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, what's interesting about the Spock storyline, it's super fascinating. And it's such like a razor like thin line to cross and i don't know if the movie i I haven't decided if how i feel about how the movie does it but you you, the thing about spock it's like it's simultaneously interesting but could also be not tired but well treaded ground because in a weird way you're kind of like it like it's this character who clearly is always like you know trying to be a good vulcan Mm -hmm. but but you're never going to root for that. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're never going to root for him being full Vulcan, but at the same time, it is what makes that character interesting. And, you know, I do want to just kind of like connect this to also a bigger point too. Cause I do. So after this scene, we're also finally introduced to Kirk. Yes. And we're kind of given the update on Kirk has been relieved of duty because he completed the five year mission. Right. He he got his uh promotion. He is now right. an, he is now an admiral. And he is no longer a uh, captain of the Enterprise, but because the Enterprise is ready to go and since he has had more like he's just more um experienced right. of, of a captain than um Decker. Uh, I was going to call him Deckard Shaw. That's a completely different franchise. <laughs> that's, a, that's that would have been an interesting movie. Dude, that would have been awesome. <laughs> Just Jason Statham on. He's like, oh, look at here, Kirk. I'm the captain of this of this of this enterprise. <laughs> so you can go jog off. <laughs> um, oh, I forgot how good your your Statham impression is. Uh, that that that's a little bit of the lackluster Statham, but maybe one day we'll get it. Um, but. But anyway, yeah, so they need, but they're going to assign him because he has more experience. And there's like this kind of weird thing about the Star Trek series and their movies that is 
simultaneous simultaneously admirable but i think i may be kind of tired of it they always kind of do these plots where kirk is like not like they never do the plot where it's just they're the crew on the ship and they're going on an adventure <laughs> like it's always like Kirk's, kirk's about to lose the ship or he just lost the ship <laughs> or he's like it's kind of like the bond like he's always going rogue and like the in the craig era like everybody like it's funny that like the series is always the movies which maybe if i was more invested in like the world and the timeline like i can actually see the merit to it but mm -hmm. maybe as kind of like a more casual like it's just funny that the context of these movies is always like justifying why they're on this the ship like mm -hmm. and it's you know they're or they're they're always like commenting on it like very like is it like i can't maybe i just haven't seen it but it's like I've never really have seen the movie yet where it's just like they're just part of the crew, I guess. Because yeah. even like the newer movies, like the first one is the origin story. And then the second one, he's relieved of duty because he's not fit for the five-year journey. And then the second one, and then the third one, he wants to quit the five-year journey because it's boring. Like it's always like he, he like something about that. Whereas even like the next generation movies they kind of frame it where all the movies are just like they're like on their missions yeah like they're just that's very true and it's just, it, I think this it's, is a very me point it's not yeah, actually I, and it really has to do too though with like the again the gap between sort of the original series and you know where we are now because the the one thing is like the thing about this movie too is that they try their damnedest to not per to basically pretend that 10 years have not passed uh see okay see so this was the thing just like in terms of the movement and the storytelling they kind of just like drop you into this whole into the the how many years later is it supposed to be so it's basically come to about that this is essentially like four years after the series ended so okay. pro like basically in a sense, like two years after the five-year mission ended. So I found that to be difficult because they're dropping you just like into the context of that, but I'm not emotionally connected to the context. Like it wasn't like, the, like to my knowledge, it wasn't like the show ended with now they're done. Like, right. it, you know what I mean? So it wasn't like, so you're asking me to be like, well, they finished their five-year mission and it's been another four years and we're also not going to give you any like scenes that kind of address that. It's just kind of like, we'll explain it, but it's just kind of like, Oh, by the way, like he's going to be, he's coming back on to as captain now. So I found that on paper to be fine, but emotionally I didn't get connected to that aspect of the story. Yeah. That's one of the, definitely one of the things is it's essentially a movie that really just drops you in because again, it just starts off with and this giant cloud attack and then you just cut the, you cut the Kirk coming in on a train to the San Francisco headquarters of Federation. And he's just talking to some dude being like, I'm going into a meeting and I'm going to come out and control the enterprise. And then, you know, it just keeps going from there. And the other thing about it too, is that it leads to a good on the human level of the movie. It leads to a good portion of the movie where nobody is likable because like Kirk isn't particularly likable in the movie. Mm. Um, yeah. Because He's coming in like, I mean, it's kind of interesting again on paper, but like he's coming in being a dick to uh, 
um, Decker. Yeah. And like he's being a dick to him, and then Decker's being a dick to him. And sure, like you understand it based off of the context, but like you're just like everybody is kind of unlikable. Then you have Spot coming, and yes, you get that he's trying to do his good Vulcan thing, but and like and it, again, it makes sense. But then it's like, but now it's like you don't even get like like fun Leonard Nimoy, like, and that's why it's like when Bone shows up. I mean, I loved Bones in this movie. He's I, great. I, like, He's so good. And and it and it just made me think about how throughout this these franchises, like, and by the way, I know this is a different movie. How great is also Carl Urban in like yeah. the newer movies? Yeah, he's like, act, like secretly one of the best parts of right. like like his interpretation of McCoy is one of the best parts of those. Well, uh, you those forget movies. like how great of a character McCoy. Like DeForest Kelly is great, and the only reason I mentioned Carl Urban because he did such a great job of like revitalizing that character later on yeah and to the point that like i just like that character as a whole like he actually may be my favorite of the original uh series characters especially like deforest kelly and the dr mccoy character is really the secret weapon of star trek because i think it's like again you get the focus on kirk and spock and for good reason because those characters are very interesting and especially once we get to like kind of these later uh you know original series movies they their relationship is very very fascinating um well, he, he's similar and different to like let's say a han solo in the star wars movies because like kind of the key about the han solo character is that he's kind of more of like not an audience surrogate but closer to the audience but like the the appeal to a han solo is kind of like he's acting like Harrison Ford in a Star Wars movie like he's kind of like uh, okay like a lot of this stuff is ridiculous just just hang back be cool like whatever mm-hmm. and DeForest Kelly's uh in Bones isn't necessarily that well all iterations of Bones isn't necessarily that though the reason I love Bones is because Bones feels like a real like he has that kind of like Oh man, what what is this mess you've gotten us into? And like calling out the absurdity, but more from like an in-world real person. Like yeah. he's not like the character who's like saying what the audience is thinking, but he definitely has that air of just like the guy who doesn't want to be there. I mean, like, everything, I, I like I love him. Everything like, you I, need to know about Bones as a character is in his introduction scene. I also love a bit a little thing about Bones that I love all across the series is that he's the medical officer but he always seems to like because because he's like jim's best friend like he's just all, like why are you around bones like why are you always around in confidential like th- like like it just seems like such like a like not where you should be on the ship as the medical yeah officer. but i think again that's what makes him great is because he is the medical officer you know he shouldn't be but that's like he's exactly the type of voice yeah that, like, no, I, I that kirk needs to hear and again, like that that introduction scene where he's like basically he comes in very like seventies dress with like a medal and a big beard. Oh, the and, beard! Yes, the beard is awesome. And then like you know, Kirk gets the word that's like, oh, like we're having trouble with one of the re- you know replacement crew. And then he like he just goes on this whole rant of this like, you know, he's like, let me tell you why I'm here. I you're 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 a revered Admiral Gru. Like you know, put uh, he he's he gave me these. Seldom used active reserve clause basically means I've been drafted and is, and then, you know, just like, why is everything we don't know always called a thing Yeah, that? Okay. I died when he said that because it's like, 
because again i guess you could kind of say like that is kind of like a making fun of the scenario but it it just felt like, like it feels like i mean it's just something he would say yeah it's and, not like he's making fun of the scenario it's just even, like he has know, a and he has a great button on the scene where uh, you know, basically, like Kirk is essentially telling them, like, I just need you from a mental, from a friendship perspective. Oh, That's this is this is where uh, uh, Shatner's Shatner acting came in <laughs> in the movie, where he's like, I need you, yes, I need you, <laughs> yeah. And then he basically, um, you know, he he basically is like shakes hands, is like welcome aboard, and is like, you know, permission to come aboard, Captain. Then he just starts walking off. He's like, Well, I hear Chapel's an MD now. Yeah, I'm gonna need a top nurse, not someone who's gonna argue with me. And I bet they changed the entire sick bay. I know engineers; they just love to change things. Yeah, and it yeah. just cuts off. Just but, big grandpa sorry, vibes. Sorry, can I go back though? Uh, I want to go back because obviously there's other stuff that happens. Obviously, well, like- but the, the real quick, the the reason I wanted to bring him up, and then this will be the last time I bring up the point, is like, and so he's great, but it just created an atmosphere for me where up until the last thirty minutes, where you know. Uh, Kirk and Decker like handle their business and they kind of become buddies and Spock finally like stops obsessing over the emotion thing and becomes a little bit more of the Spock that we love from the show. Mm-hmm. And then everybody became just kind of like the character that like yeah. you remember them from the show. So just on the character level, it became much more enjoyable in the last 30 minutes. Of I definitely show. think that like starting from like kind of, uh, for me, it's like starting from the second half onward. Like that's where just the movie starts really picking up for me. Like the first half is really kind of, it has definitely interesting moments, but I feel like, I feel like once Spock actually shows up on the ship and I get what you mean of just like, he's still trying to kind of figure out the Vulcan thing. But once Spock actually shows up on the ship, just the movie's on an upward trajectory for me, like for me personally. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like the Spock thing, at least Spock kind of got like, I I did. There is some merit to, you haven't seen that character in a long time at that point. Right. It's like, it's the beginning of the, yeah, it's the beginning of the movie. And then he eventually finally shows up on the ship. Yeah, and then if he comes on and then all the crew, because they're buddies with him, they're happy to see them, and then he's doing his Vulcan thing. And so, like, I I get it. I I understand that's less egregious, but uh, again, like, I just remember from the show, like, one of the geniuses of making him the have Vulcan thing is, like, he is very much Vulcan in terms of his behavior. But there is kind of, like, I mean, let's face it, like, the way Nimoy plays it is, like, there is a wryness to the character that makes that his portrayal so great. So I did find myself really missing that. But Nimoy is so great because throughout the movie, you can kind of tell that like, you know, what's so great about his Spock is like when he's doing this bit, it feels like the character is trying to be like proper. Like, you know what I mean? Like you can tell like he's putting on the airs of trying to be a good Vulcan and like you know like you know he's playing like the not reacting to like his crew being like you know happy to see him as if like he would probably like to reciprocate that in some way shape or form but he's like overplaying it in the other direction so i mean as always nimoy is just he's just he's, great in the cast he's just character. really good like it's yeah. just like because watching these original series episodes and then like starting with this movie and and, and very much looking forward to what's coming next uh, it's just Nimoy. It's just like it's just a perfect. It's just a perfect matching of a character to a performer, and like Nimoy just in- inhabits that Spock role so well. 
And I, I agree with you that I, I think what's great, what I love about his performance in this movie is that you can kind of tell that like, you know, he's searching for these answers and he's like, you know, trying to figure out what he actually is now that he's like, you know, and kind of that's the whole thing where it's like he was done with the five-year mission. Was it the right thing? And like all that sort of stuff. But he does kind of play this as like the struggle of the character that it isn't just like, oh, I'm just playing like kind of Spock being kind of regular old, like kind of Vulcan, you know, stoic. Like he is struggling with the emotions and like, and how to act. And this just makes for me, the Spock character very interesting in this movie. I I think Mm -hmm. I like the Spock journey a little bit more than you do. Um, I think it's also a testament to just Nimoy as a performer that just gets me invested. In I, I, him. I I get it. I, I think that right. I, I actually think that everything human wise just needed another pass in the yeah, script phase. That's fair because, enough. Yeah, that that's really all it was. Because like it, it seemed like you could track it, it all makes sense. Like I, I, I get it. Yeah. Uh and it works, but it, it, as a viewing experience, I I, I I found myself not engaged until like the last, like until they kind of got yeah. through all that stuff. Like once that characters like got through their journeys, like that's basically. Yeah. Like- because like when he, like, that's the thing, like he, he goes through his journey and he's on like the bed and he's like having his whole, basically like, you know, he, emotions ain't that bad, like kind of type of revelation. And it's kind of like, okay, I get it. Like now let's move on. Like yeah. all your, the, the explore, the exploration stuff is more interesting anyway. Yeah. I do love like, that that scene though. Like I, I'm a big fan, and I've just I guess the more I've watched this movie, it's just his, you know, connection with Viger, which we'll talk about in a second, um, and just like kind of like how it's made him realize that like you know the 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 enemy ship is is you know it's very logical but just cold, you mm-hmm. know, and just that like him grabbing Kirk's hand is like this simple feeling is something that it will never understand. I just love. Mm-hmm. It. I just, it was just a sucker for Le- the the way he. I'm saying. I get it. I like. Right. I, I'm just. I I'm just a sucker works. for it. Yeah. Uh, I do want to go back earlier for a couple things that we missed. One, yes. So this Decker character is the new captain of the Enterprise. Um, and Kirk basically overtakes command. And they're basically like having a little bit of an issue with that. You know, like, you know, Decker thinks he did it on purpose. Kirk thinks that it's like the right thing to do. All that sort of stuff. But I wanted to talk about, uh, well, we should talk about... Um, the, the the infamous scene of the introduction of the Enterprise as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is very noted for its extremely lengthy time See, frame. But, but here was the thing: it's it, it is a good source of mockery. Like it, it, it's just like such a good thing that you can easily make fun of because it's like, oh yeah, I guess they like the way I kind of looked at it was like, yeah, I guess it is kind of like long and or like it is kind of like you could easily make fun of it but i i guess like i don't know see for me those scenes were properly done Mm -hmm. and i was very much engaged and the music was great and they're trying to really get you to like understand the majesty and why it is important in fact i actually think that this this kind of gag is played better later on. Like, I kind of get it. Like, maybe, like, you're like, okay, we get it. It's the Enterprise. Like, yeah. And this is the first time we're seeing it. I, I much prefer, and I know, like, there's probably Trek fans who are always going to, like, go crazy if, like, you say prefer to, like, the, the Kelvin timeline stuff. But I much prefer, like, how Abrams kind of does it in, like, the first 09 movie where 
they have like a great Michael Giacchino kind of like music cue to like in, like introduce it, and you, know, you get a, a good look at it, and then like the story just keeps on moving from there. Yeah, like, I, I, I much prefer that. But I found myself like maybe from a filmmaking point of view, really appreciating and being more engaged with that in the scenes like that in this movie than anything else. Yeah. I think I agree that when it's done later, I think it's a much more effective thing. And I think it's like, again, it's like kind of the thing where it's like, yes, it's like this big long scene, but I do think that again, the, the Goldsmith score and just kind of just a little bits of just like, you know, Kirk just looking proudly at this ship that he's so fond of. And, and just, I think it's, again, it's what they wanted to do. They wanted to showcase the visual effects. They wanted to showcase these models. Um, so I, 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 I get it as well, but I always, again, have a little bit of a love for the scene. Also a scene that I have a little bit of love for is what is secretly one of the most terrifying scenes in all of Trek history when the transporter room starts failing. Oh, that was and, crazy. And they have to go back up and they're basically like these which I love about this scene, number of things. One is that it's like, I mean, the whole point of the scene is that it's eventually the reason as if you need a reason to explain why Ilya's on the ship. Like, but it's just like, it's kind of there just to be there, but it's also extremely terrifying because like we've seen this, you know, if you're a Star Trek fan, you've seen just the transporters just go off without a hitch for basically the entirety of the original series. It's like second, the, you know, it's just like second nature, like, oh, they're going to transport in. But then you really see like the, 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 the people start like, you know, forming, but then like screaming and like going together. Um, and then they disappear. And then they like, you know, Kirk's like, Starfleet, do you have them? And then they're just like, Enterprise what what arrived here didn't last long thankfully <laughs> like yeah that was like that was fortunately crazy and what i also love about this scene is that this is the scene that they give janice rand this character that had you know been you know disappeared from the original series after 13 episodes i explained in my original episode but was brought back after fan demand because like they were like you know they just love trek and they just wanted all the characters back and they give her this hard scene where she has to be like oh shit i didn't you know these guys just died on my watch yeah i think it's fun uh i just love that scene just for its absurdity of just like it's just there and all of a sudden it's, it's like so terrifying mm-hmm yeah, it, it, it's funny, like, as you were talking about, like, the, like, now that we're back on the Enterprise, here's another thing that kind of came up when I was watching this movie. My love-hate relationship with production design in, like, some of these movies. Mm -hmm. Because there is something to, like, okay, like, they do look like great, proper sets. And they don't look like the TV sets, right. like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. they, don't, they, they, they up the production design and now these places look like proper space spaceships. I simultaneously, well, let me get to this per, this first part. I like that, but I also like, I miss like kind of like just the color of the show. Mm -hmm. I've always missed that. Like, and they always never go back to it in the, in the movies. Like they always kind of go with these, like just kind of like muted, not maybe not muted, but these more grounded sci-fi and or military outfits. Like, cause yeah. at least like the Wrath of Khan outfits are like red. Yes. But like, it, it's just like, I, I, I found myself like, it's all technically impressive and it looks good, but I did find myself like missing 
the multicolor outfits and like more of like there was just more color in the in yeah the, i definitely agree I, I, these outfits are very drab and like, also my love-hate relationship with the outfits because i simultaneously like that star trek has its own unique look that i can point to I also hate that everyone is wearing pajamas. Like I just, I never liked it. I have to just be honest. Yeah. I, I get it. It's like an idealized future, but like, I don't know. Cause it, <laughs> it, it, it like it, it, they're all like wearing these robes and like, at least what's it called? At least like in the, in the show, they feel like these kind of like unique uniforms that they came up with that right. you can kind of track and follow what they mean. That's what's so genius about them because the yellow, like, and the blue and the reds, like they yeah. all kind of like had like a, like a meaning just based off a of color. Like it's such like a simplistic genius, like costume design choice. Yeah. It's and just I like always they, was bugged that they threw that out in the movies. Right. Cause it's too subtle in this movie. Cause actually like, if you look like the insignia area is different color based on what they do, but it's just too subtle. You just don't notice it unless you're looking for yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I do I, agree. I like, I mean, I like what they kind of do in later movies, like a little bit more, but I, I agree. Just the iconic look of like, like Spock in that blue outfit and like, you know, Kirk in his yellow or green also, depending on the season. Also before I forget. Okay. Are there aliens in Star Trek or are there not? Because like I keep I'm I'm always told that like this is like a galactic federation and I know that there are aliens. Most of them are humanoid aliens and I think that there's a merit to that, especially that's cool for the fandom because a lot of people can just like easily cosplay and stuff and that's kind of like a charm to Star Trek. Yeah. But I'm always like okay, it's like a galactic federation. Are there like cuz it's not like Star Wars where it's like the cantina and like, you know, there's like, and the rebellion is like filled with a bunch of aliens. But then like, I'm watching like this big crowd scene on the Enterprise and then like six, seven rows back, there's like a weird blue alien guy with like a full on headpiece. And I'm like, who is that guy? And then there's, <laughs> yeah. like, a, and then there's like a dog man, like five rows from him. And then I'm like, who are those two guys? Why are they just shoved in the back? <laughs> yeah. Like, you're acting like I didn't see those guys. Like, what's their story? <laughs> They're sticking out like Thor's sore thumbs are back there. They don't look terrible makeup-wise. Like, what is the alien situation in this world? So that, that, that was something that, like, kind of, like, just drove me crazy. I was like, who, I will, who is that guy? Uh, The answer is yes, but... No, <laughs> yeah, especially. Uh, I mean, this does remind me of another, like a a legend that uh, a story is that allegedly that uh, Roddenberry had asked his wife Majel Barrett instead of playing Nurse Chaffel, uh to play the the cat creature that she played on the animated series, which had a lot more alien stuff, and she refused because she didn't want to go into makeup. Like that mm -hmm. was that was that sort of thing. Uh, basically, I mean, this the long of the sort of it is that. Yes, aliens exist, but it's like bigger aliens in stories are basically stuck to Klingons until the next generation era. Right. Like the next generation era, you do start to get like a little bit more, especially once you get into the spinoffs and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, because Star Trek has that thing. And maybe this is why I always gravitated more to Star Wars, because Star Wars actually just went ham on like aliens and like weird like creatures right. and yeah. stuff whereas like i find star trek like talks a lot about like 
like an alien somewhere you know what i mean like they're they're always seeming like mentioning it's like oh remember like the spider people of of like the the fifth sector or something like that like they're yeah. always like mentioning that they're out there right uh but it, again more of a funny observation from me than an actual criticism mm-hmm. but yeah um we, we get like you know and then so eventually yes uh you know they finally kind of get the ship you know out to space um there's a few more misadventures with sort of again sort of the ship has been like kind of newly outfitted by by with a, with a project by Scotty um who doesn't get nearly enough time in this movie I'm, I'm a big Scotty guy uh and he just kind of has some stuff in the first half and then just sort of disappears um you know we have some sort of stuff where they try to go in the warp drive and then they basically create a wormhole and start going real slow motion uh, with with these light effects, that scene was awful. That's a <laughs> terrible scene. It, it I'm sorry. It's uh, this one of the it, 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 it's like one it. of those things where it's like not even like like I mean like there's some fun conceits with how they do like the like the trailing, but the but it keeps on cutting to like this asteroid that just looks like a transparent PNG stuck in the middle of a screen. Like it was, it was I was like this this scene did not hold up. I, I'm sorry, I, it's, it doesn't. But I also love it from a so bad it's good perspective, right, especially right, with right. all the slow motion and Decker being like, no photon torpedoes. Um, awful, terrible. <laughs> uh, but eventually, yeah. Goes, so eventually, he goes on. Spock shows up because he's felt this big presence, and he feels like there's some sort of connection with his exploration. We finally get into this big mysterious cloud, and are introduced to this mammoth machine ship thing that they still don't necessarily know what it is. Awesome, awesome, best part of the movie. Hundred percent. Okay, so we eventually find out that it's known as Viger. Mm-hmm. Uh, through other aspects of the movie. This is where we talk about where the Enterprise scene at the beginning is kind of maybe, you know, a little overindulgent. And the sort of going through the V'ger ship is also very overindulgent, but rocks. No, no, I, 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 I mean, I guess it is overindulgent, but I was, ho- this was, I was hooked into the movie. Like, this was like the... I just thought like the way, okay, like during this scene, this was the first time where like the Star Trek franchise really grabbed me like, like hard and sold me the whole space exploration aspect of them. Like the fact that like they go into this storm and then there's just this like huge monolithic ship that you can kind of make out but you kind of can't and it just keeps on going on and on and and actually one of the reasons like why the enterprise scene plays well in context is because you since you've introduced it so well and so thoroughly that when you get that shot of the bird's eye view and you see how small the enterprise is compared to the ship yeah like and it, it just reminded me of like the immensity of like seeing like i don't know like the space jockey ship for the first time it, it's just like it, they're really the movie j- in in this scene just did a good job of like really just like striking this perfect tone of just awe inspiring creepiness and i i like i was hooked every second of it and i maybe i'm overselling it to a certain degree but i i 
I, I found myself, I was like doing something. And then when this scene happened, I was glued to the screen. I just, yeah, I, I honestly very much agree. Just the, the, like, just even from a technical perspective, like the model work mm-hmm. of, of the V'ger ship. Again, like they, they told you, it's like a, they made a 68 foot long model that had like so many different options of what you could see. And it really showcases like this is something so totally off the scale of just like and, what you can imagine and great music great editing like they do they do just the right amount of like like it's clear that like you know that the characters we're follow we're following are also just like kind of like they don't know what's going on and the the the, the whole scene just really gets you into the mood of like what it would be like in space exploration to find this massive thing that you don't yeah. know what it and is. Like, yeah, that's that shot of the Enterprise so small with the big kind of gaping mouth type thing where it's just like kind of opening and closing. Uh, it's just incredible stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I that I I was a huge I was a huge fan of that. Right. So we get to a little bit more. So basically, then you know, there's trying to connect, trying to contact. Eventually. S- a, a, a kind of a stream of light appears on the ship and it kind of like, you know, freaks out everybody kind of starts shocking everybody and eventually takes Ilya uh, essentially, essentially makes her disappear uh, to the confusion of all the characters. Yeah. Um, which, I was but, it's, ta- it, it, but it, it's ultimately revealed that it abducted her and, like maybe like reformatted her in like yeah a, basically a like kind of yeah. made her like a copy or, or like a version of her as as kind of a uh part of the V'ger you know introduces herself like I am part of V'ger I am like a, a probe for V'ger yeah because up until this point the movie plays it like pretty vague like is it like a machine ship or is it like an alien thing like what what is it like so it, it plays it very vague up until that point. So they kind of like, oh, it abducted her and is like now sending like a reformatted Ilya in the with the name V'ger as kind of like a probe. Yes. Yes. Uh, so this is where we kind of get into uh, two aspects of the movie is this relationship between Decker and Ilya. Ilya. You know, uh, they're kind of Decker was once stationed on the Delton homeworld. They had sort of a relationship. He broke it off when he was leaving. Now that she's like a probe, they're tasking him with unlike, you know, she shows signs that she remembers life as Ilya. Ilya. Uh, so he's like, Decker, you're kind of her best friend or the one who knows her the best. You know, if you can unlock some more memories, we can kind of save Earth, essentially. Also, meanwhile, Spock gets his big scene in the movie mm. with the what is known on the soundtrack as the Spock walk. Mm-hmm. where he takes also a, a pretty cool scene oh this scene is one of i mean it's also one of the other famous scenes but it's a famous scene in the movie for a good like a good reason is one it's one of the scenes it's one of the film's most well-renowned scenes it's when spock steals a like space space suit essentially and says that he's going to go into the heart of V'ger essentially and he goes into heart of V'ger you know, he it, and basically like like one of the suits are missing and, and and Kirk kind of has this thing where he's like, you know, I'm going to go after him. No, wait, what's his position? Like he kind of knows that like, well, if Spock is going to if anything's going to happen, like Spock's going to, you know, get something out of this. And so Spock goes in and he basically sees sort of what he kind of describes as kind of like 
V'ger's memory. Like V'ger sees like copies of planets and sort of like the alien whole, like the possible homeworld of V'ger. He going through and he's kind of theorizing that it basically downloads planets and downloads people and downloads histories, basically kind of giving this a sort of infinite knowledge. And he eventually makes it all the way into and sees the sort of it's, copy. It, it's Brainiac. Right. Yeah. It's copy. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, 3D copy of, of Illa and the probe and like the light that like the probe has is kind of its center. And Spock is like, I'm going to mind meld with this thing. Like, and, and as soon as he's like that, I'm like, oh, like uh, that, even when I saw it the first time I was like, oh shit, that's amazing that he's just like, I need the mind meld with it. Uh, and then he mind melds with it. Which I'm like, Spock, you tried to do this to like a weird like cave sludge once and it did not go well. What do you think is going to happen when you do it to this? Well, technically they, it did, you know, it's just like he, he got it like, you know, he was very emotional. But, you know, mm-hmm. that's the first time we ever saw it. It's very, he refined it since then. But it, but it also has this great thing where it just flashes a bunch of quick images. Spock like goes crazy and it shoots him back out and Kirk saves him. It's just a great, again, another kind of impressive sort of scene of just like the scope of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. It's um, it, it, it's great stuff, visually interesting, um, and you know they're they're peeling back the layers of what's going on, um, yeah, yeah. And then this is kind of our lead up into the last part of the movie. We talked about the bed scene with where where Spock talks about like what he saw in the mind meld, and again, I just love this whole thing where he's just like realizes that like sort of this total logic he's searching for is just not what it is. just like the feelings are what makes him, him. I, I just, I've, I've grown to just love that performance. And I, I think it's like Nimoy that sells the performance of just him realizing this. And again, I realize I, 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 I it's one of those things, like I said, like I said, I love this movie because of it and despite its flaws. And I a hundred percent, there's a part of me that a hundred percent agree with you that it just, you know, it doesn't present this story in the most interesting way, but I've just come to love the little moments. of just like, I think, you know, the Kirk Spock relationship is so key and right. Like at, we don't really get the true form of it until the end of this movie, but just that moment where, you know, Kirk is, you know, Kirk has these kind of, you know, I, I, I even like the beginning, like you could just tell Kirk is so enamored with just Spock being there. Like when he has a Spock, Spock, mm-hmm. like when he first appears, but this moment where Spock takes a hold of Kirk's hand and just looks at him. It's like this simple feeling. I just fall for it, man. I just fall for it. I yeah, love it. It's not bad. Um, but you know, it's we- funny, as you said, we were kind of like getting into like the, the ending. Um, what, what's funny about it is that, you know, I was kind of like half interested in like what the actual mystery was. And I know there's like things where, you know, there, n- now it's a ticking clock where, you know, it, it wants, uh, you know, it, it's, it's plans are to destroy the planet for like knowledge and stuff like that. So they try to outsmart V'ger and everything. Well, I mean, so, v- like, V'ger is looking for its creator and it believes that its creator is somewhere around earth. Right. Then that's- so, so, you know, I, I, again, I was kind of in and out of like the, the specifics of like how they built up the mystery. Yeah. So that being said, the reveal of what's going on actually still landed for me. So I'll give the movie that credit is that the ultimate reveal of the, what the deal was yeah. actually worked. This ending to me is baller. Like it's just 
It's also like a really classic Star Trek thing. It's a classic Star Trek. Yeah. I think this is the most telling of it. Like I can imagine this most and, and it's TV episode form. Like I could just imagine like a much lesser version of this, like in terms of production stuff. Like, you know, this it's a classic. It really is a classic Trek twist because basically what they do is, yeah, V'ger, you know, basically says, oh, you know, the carbon units are investing the enterprise. We're looking for the creator, believing the creator has to be a machine and it has to be on Earth somewhere. And everybody's confused by this. It has these like big weapons that it's like circling around the Earth. And then Spock basically says, V'ger's a child. You got to treat it as such. And I do like this. This is the most Kirk moment of the movie when he just like bluffs his way into being like treating it like a spoiled child. And then it working yeah. where it's just like, you know, it's just like everybody leave the bridge and they're like, leave the bridge like what are you doing and then like basically it just reveals that like V'ger like you know V'ger needs the information all that sort of stuff and I actually think by the way that Illa does a great job as a performance just from the robotic nature of it I think like mixing that I think yeah Illa is like a character again was meant to be kind of continuing on the series and when you just kind of place her in you know and again taking away the details of her Delton heritage which was probably going to be more explored in the series like the Vulcan stuff was in the original series mm -hmm. it does lose some stuff and the Decker and Illa stuff it kind of just kind of floats and it really doesn't really be effective until the very end of me but I do give that credit where it's like once you kind of transition her into the probe and her like stoic nature but still kind of again it's kind of like Spock kind of still having a portrayal of the emotions I think really works but they basically are like treat her like a child and they're basically like you we we won't give you the information about the creator unless you take away the weapons and you know they're basically like you know treating her like a spoiled brat like a spoiled child and they get her way so Decker Spock Kirk and uh McCoy all go to the heart of V'ger to find out the truth, mm -hmm. which is that V'ger is actually... They find out, they, 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 they wipe in the dust, and what they find out is P.N. Gwyn actually means the penguin. <laughs> <laughs> and what I mean, what, what he was by that is that V'ger is actually Voyager, which is mm -hmm. Voyager 6, which was, you know, an old NASA probe from the time period about when the movie was made, about the 70s race. In reality, they actually had just launched Voyager 1 and 2. So this, mm -hmm. the idea was they would eventually launch Voyager 6. But Voyager 6 was like those other probes at the time was sent out with the basic programming of like, you know, send, get all the information you can, take pictures of planets and shit and send it back to Earth, send it back to your creator. But then Voyager 6 eventually lands on a machine planet that basically outfits it into this gigantic ship to actually achieve its purchase of knowing all that is knowable. And now V'ger has kind of become sentient and is looking for its purpose and looking for its creator. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, all of this was stuff up my alley. I, I thought that first of all, like the idea that V'ger was like, you know, they do the classic it's cause it's all this like advanced kind of like very like a, uh, um, 2001 mixed with black hole type of machinery and at the center of it is just like something and, and the fact that oh when they wipe away the dust it says Voyager so the fact that like I just like kind of like conceptually that idea yeah. that at the center of it is actually this old piece of like human technology and so I like that I like the reveal and then I'm also always into the whole conceit of evolved AI having like a weird different like uh 
perception of what their like basic function is. Yeah, and I like this perception too. I like that, that idea. And I like this perception too, and this idea that like, you know, they kind of have this meeting like the between the four people there. And like Decker is already like enamored with this thing and, and, and they basically bounce ideas off of it. it's like the thing that's going on is that, you know, it's learned all that it can and now is searching for the next step. But like, you know, like and then they're like, like, I think Kirk or McCoy, is, I think it was McCoy is like, what is there more than everything? And then like they're like alternate universes and 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 and, and uh, knowledge of a higher power, like all this stuff that like requires a human logic, you know, a human leap of faith that this machine doesn't have. Well, it, it, but it was interesting because why I like the conversation is because they were kind of getting at like, well, it's looking for its creator and we're the creator. So like that should do. But then it became a whole thing. It's like, yeah, but no, what it really needs, it's like it, it basically in so many words needs the creator to kind of also like prove like the impossible and like God and everything like that. And human beings can't do that. So it was kind of like this weird kind of like artificial intelligence solving paradox that I thought made it all interesting. Yeah, And the ultimate goal, it, it seems like is that the, that the V'ger now wants to actually merge with its creator mm-hmm. to like, you know, to be like that ultimate thing. And so they, it's funny because, again, you get, like, it's, like, this stuff, like, that Kirk trying to get the old NASA codes. They're, like, beaming it in through the radio waves, which I like that little thing where it's, like, earlier it's, like, sending out this signal, like, the first kind of hint of it. It's, like, they're sending out the signal, and Spock's, like, you know, he takes all the technical terms. It's, like, Kirk, it's radio waves. Radio waves? Like, you know, that it's old-fashioned technology, like, radio but then they eventually try to radio it back like the code it like basically yeah that sound- that that also sorry that reminds me also of um in uh what is it uh, star trek beyond where it's like they call like the rock music they, yeah. they call beast it was a beastie boys yes yeah, the beastie it, boys they call it classical yeah, they call it classical music and and i always have to kind of like remember that you know it's so future for them that like that's how they look at like yeah that kind of stuff right so they basically try to radio in like the sequence that will let Viger voyager like you know bring back its information voyager basically untethers itself from this information and they realize like the only way to do it is to input it manually it wants to meet their creator and decker sacrifices himself you know to merge with ill merge with Viger and apparently create a new being of some sort that, yeah. that, that kind of finally leaves Earth. And that's cool. And then the movie ends. Yeah. Well, Which is well, kind of like also kind of like... Very Star Trek and very TV show-ish. It, well, it's it's not... I mean, it is a little Star Trek, but it's also kind of like very telling of the movie. It's like, oh, all right, we did our like next step of human evolution. Uh, we did what we wanted to say roll the credits like really no kind of wrap up of any of like the characters like (laughs) like what did what did anybody learn like you know mccoy made a joke about him giving birth or him uh it's 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 been a long time it's been a long time since he was overseeing you know a birth of a new baby all, that, all that's all that said. I did like Kirk's final line in the movie. His just little moment at the end, yeah. where he was just like, you know, he's taking advantage of the fact that you know he has the helm for a little bit. So he's just like, what? What was it? Just like he's like, where do we go? It's like, just out there, just go. Yeah, no, he's like, uh, what was it? Uh, like, so they're basically like, let's give the ship a proper shakedown because mm-hmm. there's you know it's a the retrofitting the ship, 
And then Sula's like, which direction? You know, where you want to go, sir? Out there. And he leans back. That away. Yeah. <laughs> to me to me, that I kind of had this thought, like, where's that movie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I know, I know that's not fair. But I, I will say I did just I love that moment because I, I just love those kind of like it was just a very human moment, and I, I really enjoyed you it. You also get a, a classic uh, classic Spock line that's, like, straight out of the original series show where it's, like, McCoy is just, like, and it'll have to deal, like, uh, you know, and I guess it'll have to deal with all the flaws of human emotion, right, Spock? And then Spock's like, yep, it unfortunately will have to deal with those as well. Like, he's, like, he acknowledges that he, like, he accepts them, but, like, it's still, like, something he likes to joke with McCoy about. It's very... Yeah, I mean, okay. listen, on paper, I get, like, that everybody was kind of starting from a certain place where they're all, like, in different points of their life, and then they all learn a lesson that makes them the more familiar character that we know and love. Mm-hmm. And and I don't really have an issue with that in principle, um, it's just that I don't know if the movie handles all that stuff as well as it could now, as opposed to the exploration stuff, which I think is knockout throughout. Yeah, I agree. Mm. So, yeah, it's just it's, it's an interesting first step for the through the motion picture era of Star Trek. Um, but again, it's just a movie that it has. It's not perfect by any means, but I've just found myself developing such a love for just for the fact of what it is. And also, I mean, I think it helps that we did get better original series Star Trek films that this one you can kind of reflect on and look back and really do take the interesting elements. Like, again, the special effects works is out of the park. I do like some of the character stuff with Spock. I think, again, this is top four McCoy. And just, I love the ending. The ending's great. And I just have, an, a, it's just a movie for me that it's just, it's such an interesting anomaly in many ways that I really can just put this on as like a background thing and just like look up at those interesting moments. And I also, again, it's like, it's not the best that these characters are in these original series movies. I mean, again, we're just about to get the Wrath of Khan next and that's like killer character stuff in that movie. But there is still something about just seeing Shatner and Nimoy and DeForest Kelly and everybody. It's just like on the screen in a movie like this. It's just, to me, it's like kind of soothing in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All yeah, right. I get it. I, it. It's interesting for me kind of, I'm coming in with more, I guess, of the knowledge. Like now I have seen other movies with them. Um, and honestly, better versions of like, you know, with them in it. Uh, so um yeah, I mean, it's good to see them. I'm just always, I, I'm still kind of always bummed out when like, like the rest of the crew doesn't get their shine. Yeah, like, I kind I, of like, I, like I kind of would like all of them too. Like, yeah. I, I'm not just ha- like completely satisfied with only. And I'm not saying like you got to give every single crew member like a huge thing to do, but um, yeah, it's like it, role, it's, at least. yeah, it's like you know, especially for a movie because like this would be fine if it was like the series where like you know you had multiple episodes where you could give Sulu or her or, or Chekhov, you know, who we don't even talk about because he's basically a non-factor in this movie. He has a good joke though in the in the movie. Where, oh yes, yes, I forgot about yeah, this. where he's like, don't don't interfere with it, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah obviously. <laughs> he's like, I would definitely not interfere. Like he's definitely yeah. like, what do you what do you think I would interfere? Um, but they definitely do get more to do like, you know, cause I think like in a, in a series, again, like when the script was a series, you could kind of 
get away with that because another episode would focus on them. But when it's like the movie, you do want to give them more. And they do give them more as the rest of the series goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just really quickly, uh, wrap this up. Uh, the movie opened up on December 7th, 1979. Um, at this time, it made the record for uh, opening weekend with 11 million. Uh, it's opening weekend. Uh, eventually would uh, gross overall 139 million worldwide, which was a very big success, but disappointing for Paramount because uh, I mean, it, it, it still made back its budget, which included all the budget from the, the phase two era of it into now through when the movie's release, you know, it had kind of had that 40, 40 million dollar budget, but based on the expectations that Star Wars had already set and Close Encounters of Third Kind had already set, and even Moonraker earlier in the year, they were expecting a little bit more. Uh, They were expecting a little bit of a bigger chunk, but they did see that there was an audience for the franchise. So even though it wasn't as high as a gross, they knew that they had something here, and now it was about time to figure out exactly how they could still do the Star Trek thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie was very mixed reviews. The special effects and the score were obviously the greatest, you know, legacies of this movie, but the pacing was very much not on anybody's board. Uh, and the character work was also not uh, appreciated by most people, uh, including the cast, uh, Shatner, Nimoy, uh, and Ohura, or Nichelle Nichols would all say that they were very much disappointed by their roles and and how their characters turned out. And Shatner said that when he saw the premiere and he saw how sluggish the movie was, he's like, okay, we gave it a good run. That's it. No more Star Trek. And then he's like, that shows you how much I know. Um, The movie was nominated for three Academy Awards, uh, did not win any of them. It was nominated for art direction, visual effects, and the best score. The best score loss was a big upset. Everybody expected this to win best score that year, but the rumored reason of why uh, this movie did not win best score is Jerry Goldsmith publicly trashed his alien score from that same year. And the, uh, the, oh, uh, I didn't know that. And the music branch was apparently pissed that he, you know, pissed on his own work. So they decided not to give him, he tranked it. Yeah, he did. He did. Uh, so they still see that they, they have something here. Um, Eventually, Wise would get a chance to do another cut of it because he said that his biggest regret was that they took too long editing and did not get it in front of test audiences. They eventually did a director's cut, which is a completely different movie. It's not like a traditional, like, oh, it's longer. It's like completely recut, actually longer than this version of the movie, but generally still better regarded than the theatrical cut, though that cut has not been made available uh, on Blu-ray at all. It's still kind of stuck on DVD due to paramount's inability slash unwillingness to up the cut footage to blu-ray quality hmm. so that is star trek the motion pictures yeah i'm glad i finally saw it it was always kind of like on that list of like i i just especially for trek i just needed to see it like you always need to see the first one yeah um and it, and it's a very fascinating watch i actually think it's also a must see especially if you're getting into the franchise and you want to see the trajectory of it yeah and it's just always funny because it's like you watch the movie and then if you've seen wrath of khan it almost even makes more sense of like why wrath of khan the way it is yeah yeah so it's like that i actually a lot again that 
I would say, like, I, I honestly, the way I got into Trek, like, I don't know if you make this the first thing you watch, but I do definitely think that if you enjoy Trek, especially if you enjoy the original series, like if you see those original series shows and if you see like Wrath of Khan and you like it, I actually think you're right. I think this is a must see in terms of that. And especially, honestly, just for the effects work, I think. Like, honestly, that's what I loved most about seeing it on the big screen is just seeing those effects on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So one Star Trek movie down, Will, how do you feel? Pretty good. All right. Want to do more? Or are you, are you, are you ready? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, we're kind of getting into the area where I'm at least a little bit more familiar with it. I mean, All right. Yeah, you know, I mean, and that's the thing about this one probably – I, I, I'm not surprised by the movie that I watched yeah. in terms of like, I kind of knew that, like I said before, I knew the, uh, uh, I knew going into it, like kind of like the reception was. Um, and so I really wasn't surprised by the outcome, but what I will say about like the whole experience with Star Trek and kind of, I'm just more interested in watching the things that I haven't seen of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if I would still consider myself a fan, but I'm like a fan adjacent of it. Where, yeah. like, ever since over the past like year or so, I'm just way more interested in like, like watching any of the movies. Like, I do intend on w- watching all of them. Yeah, I'm so, glad because yeah. I'm. I'll be here. To watch them along with you, Will. <laughs> Absolutely. So next time when we were back to Trek, it is time to get into uh, what is probably the most famous of the original Star Trek, the original series movies at least, and probably the most famous Trek movie outside of maybe the Abrams reboot, uh, and, and a very important movie in Star Trek history. Uh, we'll be talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and we'll be talking about Ricardo Montalban's abs. And his specs and his specs, but don't forget we're not just doing Star Trek, ladies and gentlemen. We will be back for another episode uh, sometime later this month, later in February, where we'll be taking a look at the very first King Kong movie from 1933, which I am very excited to revisit. I haven't seen it in a while. And to everybody, you yes, we we did see and talked much, much, much about. The Godzilla versus Kong trailer, and we are both very excited. Yeah, may, maybe, finally... maybe we'll touch upon that, like when we talk about. Uh, we'll talk. King we'll Kong. we'll probably yeah. start talking about it a little bit when we talk about the Kong franchise. Yeah, cool. All right, everybody. So thank you for joining us. I'm happy that you're coming along with us on this journey. Uh, I want to personally thank everybody for making the original series episode uh, one of our honestly one of our fastest to a hundred listens. Uh, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but it really is a big deal to me because I put a lot of effort into that. And I was very nervous about doing that solo episode. So thanks for all the, the love, guys, and thanks for coming with us on this journey. I'm excited to kind of keep watching these movies and talking about them with you and, and, and with you fans and with you, Will. Awesome. Well, take care, everyone. All right. I'm going to plug real quick. BonzillaPod at gmail.com. Uh, Bonzilla, uh, 007 on Twitter. Twitter.com Facebook.com Like and subscribe. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you next time for King Kong 1933. All right. See you.